Thank you. I'm just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, John chapter 16. We're going to begin reading from verse 16. Just to say, please remember next week to come along uh, to the morning service, special baptismal service next Sunday morning. And the communion is going to be early, 9.45. So if you're coming on to communion, don't forget, make sure you come for 9.45. We're going to have a short communion service before we have our morning service with baptism at the very heart of that, and then a lunch together at the end. But we're going to read from John chapter 16, from verse 16. And Jesus says, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you see me no more, and then after a while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve But your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and that you do not even need to ask, even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has now come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Thank God again for his word. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you'll come and speak to us now, that you'll open up this word by the power of your spirit and that you'll bring it home to each of our hearts and lives and that we will understand more of just the riches that we have tonight because we believe in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.
this is something that, that I found that was published in the, the Christian magazine Leadership. So I have to say, although I have to be honest, I do find it hard to believe. I've just got to believe it's true. Here it is. A young man who works in an aquarium explained that the most popular fish is the shark. If you catch a small shark and confine it, it will stay a size proportionate to the aquarium. Sharks can be six inches long, yet fully matured. But if you turn them loose in the ocean, they grow to their normal length of eight feet. That also happens to some Christians. I've seen some of the cutest little six-inch Christians who swim around in a little puddle. But if you put them into a larger arena, into the whole world, the whole creation, only then can they become great. Now that I agree with, though I would want to expand upon it just a little bit, put a bit of background into it. That as Christians, I believe, too often we do limit ourselves. We limit ourselves to what we've experienced or to what we see around us, to what we believe we can manage in our own strength with the gifts and abilities that we have. And so we do then what's safe and comfortable. We do what helps us to feel nice and cozy and secure. But you see, what this passage here in John's Gospel tells us is that as we get out and serve Jesus and live for Jesus in this broken, sinful, and at times scary world, that as we do this, Jesus will go with us and he will work in us and through us in ways that will amaze us. And he will bring us joy. He will bring us peace, even in the midst of trouble. So let's look then from this passage at what we can expect from Jesus as we go out in mission to serve him. And where we're going to begin is with presence, with the presence of Jesus. This is Jesus' promise to his disciples here in John's Gospel and it's a promise, the promise of his presence that extends to us. Now, for the original disciples, the, the situation here is that they're just beginning more and more to, to grasp, to sense that something catastrophic is around the corner. That it's likely that very soon something terrible is going to happen to Jesus. But you see, their Jewishness, the way they've been brought up and indoctrinated as Jews makes it impossible for them to even begin to take in the fact that Jesus, if he is God's Son, if he is their Messiah, if he is the Redeemer of all mankind, to take it in, that he might be crucified and put to death. So you see, they're wrestling with all of this. They're trying to come to terms with all of this. That Jesus, who they know is special, who they know has a unique relationship with God the Father, that something awful, terrible, horrific is about to happen to him. And you see, Jesus sees that they're struggling. He's aware of what they're going through. With this being heightened here by their response to his statement in verse 16, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. 
So Jesus responds then to, to their upset and unrest by elaborating on this statement by means of a powerful parable where he uses the experience of childbirth to illustrate what his disciples will experience as they move from the cross to the resurrection. And it's that journey from pain and anguish to joy and awe and wonder. See, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples they will go through. Though at this point, they still can't take it in. Later, wonderfully, they will, but they can't. Uh, But what's interesting here is that this is a clear fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 26, written seven, eight hundred years before the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 and 18. As a woman with child and about to give pain writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain. But then, verse 19, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust will wake up and shout for joy. But the the critical point here, the point that it's vitally important that we grasp, is that what Jesus here promises, both to his disciples then And through them to us, what he promises is his living presence, his continuous, ongoing presence in our lives. See again verse 22, I will see you again, and no one will take away your joy. Now you see, for us today as Christians, what this means is that the Holy Spirit at work within us from the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ doesn't only work in our lives to enable us to glorify Christ, though He does. He doesn't only lead us into the truth of Christ, though He certainly does. No, the Holy Spirit also brings into our lives a living experience, an ongoing experience of the presence of the living, risen Jesus. But let me say here, this isn't a no matter what kind of thing. This isn't a no matter how you live, this is what you'll experience thing. No, we have got to put our lives in the right place if we're going to live this. We've got to live in obedience to Jesus. We've got to open up our lives to Jesus. We've got to draw on the spiritual resources that God has provided us to enable us to live in this way, to draw near to Jesus. God's Word and prayer, the gateways into His presence. And as we do this, and as we fix our lives on those priorities that were at the heart of Jesus' own life and ministry, that is going out in mission to a sinful and needy world, sharing the good news of the gospel of grace, of the mercy and forgiveness of God offered through faith in Christ, serving this broken, suffering, lost world in His name. As we fix our lives and hearts on these priorities, His priorities, that He calls His disciples, His church, to have at the heart of their life and ministry, then we can expect to know more and more and more even in the middle of the trial and trouble and suffering of this world, we can expect to know more of that living presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, that presence 
That brings joy. And this presence of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives, with the joy that this always brings, is something we're told here that no one, nothing, can ever take away. They can't. Because it doesn't depend on our circumstances. It doesn't depend even on our feelings in some moment in time. No, it depends on Jesus Christ and on the fact of His resurrection. On that which nothing can ever change. Now, you know, many of us here, we, we know, don't we, about the incredible suffering endured by many North Korean Christians. Today, right now, the concentration camps they're put into, where they are abused and tortured, worked to death, often martyred. And it's all because their first loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And it's seen as a threat to the Communist Party and particularly to the, the great leader, Kim Jong-un. Well, here are the final brief words of a North Korean Christian just before they were martyred for their faith. This is what this Christian said. You may take away from me my life, but you can never take Christ from my heart. Now, you see, we can be sure that that Christian suffered terribly before they died. And we can be sure that they weren't always happy, that they didn't always feel good, but they knew the presence of Jesus in their life. And because of that, no matter what, they knew joy. Because they knew that Jesus and all that he'd done for them, all he'd won for them, all he had for them, could never, ever be taken from them. But why doesn't every Christian have this kind of living experience of that presence of Christ? Well, you know, as I look both at the Bible and at contemporary Christian living, the conclusion I come to, and it ties in with what I said at the beginning, is that we do often have very limited expectations of the Christian life. We're ruled by what we have experienced. We're ruled by what we see around us rather than allowing God's Word to set the standard for us. And we don't draw on the resources God gives. We don't draw on the Word, on prayer, and open our hearts to God's Spirit. We don't because we don't feel we need to, because we don't need that much help to live the Christian life at the level we're living it at. And so because of all this, we're not focused on the priorities of Christ. We're not focused on the things he would have us focused on. We're not as committed to mission. We're not as committed to service and to faith sharing as we should be. And you know, until that changes, we will not know the presence of Jesus and the joy that Jesus Christ alone can bring into our lives in the way that God wants, in the way that God expects this to be known. We won't know that. Let me here just quote from Bruce Milne. And he says, The enjoyment of his presence is bound up with mission in his name. At this point, mission merges imperceptibly into celebration. Those who long for a deeper experience of the presence of Christ may find here the road to that blessing. 
a new commitment to serve the world in His name. He is the Lord of mission, and is still to be found at the frontiers where His people confront and minister to the wounds of the world. Well, moving on from presence, from the presence of Jesus, the next thing we're told from this passage that we can expect from Jesus as we go out in mission to serve Him, the next thing we can expect is power. We can expect to experience more of the power of Jesus. First year, verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now, now what Jesus here is saying to the disciples there and through them to us is that whereas before, whereas during his earthly ministry, they brought their requests to him and he then took them to the Father. However, post the cross and the resurrection, which again at this point that they don't really grasp, but later they will, then they and we are able to come directly to the Father so long as we come in the name of Jesus. Now, now let's just be clear why this is important and what this means. To pray in the name of Jesus, to pray that prayer that will lead the Father to give us whatever we ask for. Let me tell you first then why this is important. Because before Jesus died on the cross to pay the price of our sin, before Jesus rose from the grave to demonstrate his victory over sin and all the powers of evil, before that, our sin acted as a barrier between us and a holy God. It led to a, a fatal breakdown in our relationship with God, and it made effective communication between us and God impossible. But now, you see, now, as we come in prayer, trusting in Jesus' name, we are coming trusting in Him, trusting in His righteousness to cover and atone for all of our unrighteousness. And as we do so, we now know that covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that God will hear our prayers. Notice what Jesus goes on to say, verse 26. That day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now, what Jesus is, is dealing with here is any remaining idea of there being some kind of continuing distance between us and God. In the sense that in the name of Jesus means that we have to pray to Jesus and that he then has to pass our prayers on to the Father and intercede on our behalf. No, as we come to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus, so we gain direct access into the presence of God. For as Jesus says in verse 27, the Father himself loves you 
You see, he's always loved us, but once our sin forced him to turn from us. Now, though, you see, our faith in Jesus, our acceptance by faith of his sacrifice on our behalf, it makes it possible for the Father again, lovingly, to welcome us into his presence. Now, of course, the Bible does tell us elsewhere that Jesus does continuously intercede for his people. For example, in Hebrews 7.25, he always lives to intercede for them. But that is in addition to and is separate from our prayers. Jesus doesn't have to intercede on our behalf in order that God will hear the prayers of our heart. No, as we come in his name, we have direct access to the Father. So do you see then that adding in Jesus' name to our prayers, this shouldn't just be a habit, a tradition. It shouldn't be something meaningless, a meaningless formula, adding three meaningless words, tacking them on to the end of our prayers. Rather, when we say these words as we should say them, as we say them thoughtfully, this involves an understanding of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. This involves an understanding of our standing now before God because of that sacrifice, and that because of this, we have direct access to the Father in prayer. So you see, as we pray, we're not praying to the ceiling. As we pray in Jesus' name, we are standing in the throne room of heaven. Remember that the next time you pray in Jesus' name. But what does this mean? What can we expect as we pray in Jesus' name? What does Jesus mean when he says in verse 23, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name? Does this mean, for example, as some teach, that as we add in Jesus' name to our prayers, that this acts as some kind of, of magic formula that basically forces God to give us whatever we want, to do whatever we want? And then if this doesn't happen, then we're told that the problem is, isn't with the formula. No, the problem is with us. It's with our lack of faith as we pray this prayer. Well, let me be clear here. I believe that that's nonsense, that it's dangerous nonsense, and that it's totally inconsistent with any kind of depth understanding of what Jesus says. For remember, we've established that praying in Jesus' name isn't about mouthing a form of words. No, it's about coming in prayer, recognizing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So praying then in Jesus' name is about praying prayers that reflect his character and that seek his glory, God's glory. So it's as we pray then, not selfish prayers, but prayers that reflect his character, that seek his glory, that we can be sure that what we pray for from that heart, we will receive. And always knowing that what is for his glory might be rather different than that which makes us happy and comfortable. Well, we've 
looked at presence, the presence of Jesus. We've looked at power, the power of Jesus. We're going to finish now by looking at peace. The peace of Jesus. The peace that Jesus brings to those who love him. Now this here is introduced by the disciples mistakenly claiming that now that at last they understand and believe Jesus. And Jesus' response to this is to make it clear that he knows that any belief that they have is at best superficial. His statement in verse 31 in the NIV, you believe at last, implies irony. But in fact, that would actually be better translated in a slightly different way. Gary Burge, for instance, he suggests that Jesus is asking a question. Do you now believe? Placing some doubt on that achievement. And of course, as later events prove, and as Jesus here prophesies, their reaction to the cross and to all the events surrounding the cross demonstrate beyond any doubt just how lacking in depth their belief, their faith actually is. Verse 32, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, but I am not alone, for my Father is with me. With this then leading Jesus to make this amazing, incredible statement here in verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now notice again here what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, believe in me and you will never have trouble. Believe in me and all you will experience in life is peace and joy, happiness that is, and blessing. Again, there are those who do teach this, who do try to claim that this is what Jesus teaches, that the Christian life should be some kind of constant experience of blessing. And if this isn't our experience, then that's because in some way we're doing something wrong. We've either not got enough faith or we're not really living, claiming the promises of God. But in some way, it's because we're deficient that we're not living a Christian life of constant peace and blessing. Now, the only way people can say this is if they take Bible verses out of their context and twist and distort them beyond meaningful recognition. Because you see, the plain teaching of the Bible, the wider teaching of the Bible, makes it absolutely clear that this is totally contrary to what the Bible actually says. And it's also contrary to the experience of the men and women of God right down through the ages. I mean, did Abraham experience nothing but peace and blessing? Did Moses, did Paul, did Peter? And most importantly, did Jesus? No. And just, just look again at what Jesus actually says here. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart 
I have overcome the world. You see, in this world, we're told, we will have trouble. Not we might have trouble, we could have trouble, maybe we'll have trouble, we will have trouble. And how could we expect otherwise, living as we do in a sinful and suffering, broken world? You see, Jesus then, he isn't promising us peace by taking us out of trouble. What he's telling us is how we can find peace in the midst of trouble. So how do we find peace in the midst of trouble? Well, Jesus tells us here, first, it's by remembering that he is present with us in his power, whatever we're going through. I have told you these things, that in me you may have peace. And secondly, it's by remembering that by his death and resurrection, he has won the victory. Yes, he has. The war has been won. So while this world can hit out at God's people, and while we can suffer and we can be hurt in this world, Yet this cannot take away from, this cannot change what God has done for us eternally in Jesus Christ. You see, what this world throws against us passes. But what we have in Christ is ours forever, no matter what comes our way. And so Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, interestingly, that phrase, take heart, this is the only time the underlying Greek word there is used in John's gospel. It shows that it's significant. But you know, it is used in Mark 6, verse 50. It's the word that Jesus uses when he comes to his terrified disciples in the middle of that storm in the Sea of Galilee, where he says, Take courage. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. In exactly the same way, Jesus wants to come to each one of us in the different kind of storms that we pass through in life. He wants us to know that He's present with us in His power. And He wants us to remember that He has overcome, that He has won the victory. And so he wants us to trust him now in the middle of whatever storm we're passing through. So by God's grace, may each of us be ready to do that. May we learn to do that. Let's come in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the power of your word. We want to thank you that your word speaks of a God who is eternal, a God who is powerful, and a God who loves us and cares for us. That's the testimony of your word. You are our God, and you want us to, to know you now in that kind of way. Help us wherever we're at in life to reach out to you, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you love us. And this we ask now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song.